Hey there, and welcome to the Oscars Death Race podcast, where we keep watch of all the movies or die trying. My name's Paulo, and I'm your host. Hope everyone's death races are going well out there. It's a bit of a crazy week this week for death racers. Not only have many of us been trying to track down all of the Oscar sortless nominees for the sorts categories online before they disappear, we also have some heavy hitters releasing. Uh, Minari had its theatrical release this last week as well as some virtual screenings, uh, as did Judas and the Black Messiah on theaters and on HBO Max. And Nomadland is set to come out on Hulu this coming Friday. Uh, Long-time listeners of the podcast will know that I'm part of my school's A's and Alumni Network, and we actually got access to a special screening of Minari. Uh, We sold out our 100-seat allocation in about 100 minutes of the registration being made public. Now, this month, February, for those not in the States, is the celebration of Black History Month. And so I thought it only appropriate to have the first episode of this season of the Oscars Death Race podcast in February uh, be one where we discuss all of the many excellent black films in contention for Best Picture this year. Uh, To that end, I caught up with a friend of mine from college, either it's Nonsense or Ed, uh, who does these amazing write-ups about black film on his social media accounts that... All, uh, all under the creative tag of management. Oh, we'll get into why in a little bit. Um, so I knew I had to get him on to talk about these films. A bit of housekeeping before we dive into the interview. I actually spoke with Ed before I recorded my last episode of the podcast. So the numbers I used for gold derby rankings for different categories may be a little bit different than what they are when this episode releases. And the various categories for that were on the sort list uh, that weren't up on gold derby before those were released uh, are not included. In this episode, either, um, you know, as, as as such, also Judas and the Black Messiah was not yet out at the time of our conversation, so we didn't really dive into it as much. I hope to talk about it in a future episode. Uh, we what we do go into is Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, The Five Bloods, One Night in Miami, and Soul, uh, with a little bit of a detour midway through discussing Chadwick Boseman's career in light of his passing and him being in consideration for a couple of Oscars as well. Uh, Also, finally, just a heads up, we do go full spoiler mode for these films. Uh, This is the Oscars Death Race podcast after all, and you hopefully are trying to watch all of these films, so you have been warned. Uh, If you do care about spoilers, uh, pause this episode, watch those films, and come back to listen to this. This is an amazing uh, interview I had with Ed, so I think that's it. Uh, With all of the housekeeping out of the way, let's dive into it. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Joining me on this episode is a very dear friend of mine. Uh, he's currently a resident physician at the SUNY Downstate Medical Center in Brooklyn. Uh, we went to college together, actually, and we're both part of the uh, B-Boy crew Feeks of the Beat, uh, which is how I got to know him. I wanted to bring him on because... I follow him on, on Instagram, obviously, and he has these amazing film reviews uh, on film, particularly Black-centric films, um, under the pseudonym Management. Uh, here's a quick sample of his uh, Into the Spider-Verse review, um, which, you know, to set it up, is a little bit of dunking on the on the Venom film. Um, instead of too many minutes of Tom Hardy inside literally meaningless slime inside the commercial for another cast grab, I got a full-bodied, visually entrancing, wonderfully acted homecoming masterpiece of a celebration of all we love about our various radioactive spider people. 
The center of this spectacular Spider-Verse is Miles Morales, played perfectly by Samik Moore. This origin story has all the familiar notes, but still feels worthwhile given the earnest and incredibly likable Miles, a mixed-race Brooklynite, continually finding his strengths in 1610, newer and crazier situations, but staying to, to himself all the way. I must expatiate further on the visuals on a personal level as a fan and student of juxtaposition. One could expect the character models, kinetic cinematography, and classing of themes and tones would be as bad as the villain in Venom, but mindset is far from home. The film has a style on its own while still being a sum of so many parts. Ladies and gentlemen and others, please join me in welcoming my dear friend, either in Sinonsent or Ed, uh, to the podcast. Hey, glad to be here. All right, Ed, it's been a while since we've chatted, but you know, like I said, I've, I've always admired your writing on film from afar. Uh, so, you know, why don't you tell us, you know, aside from the introduction, is there anything else about about yourself that I might have missed? Well, no, I mean that that's a a really kind and appreciated uh, mention, especially you know after a crazy year of being a resident in downstate. Uh, it's great to to get to talk about some of the stuff I love, and I must say, I actually really love your material. I have been following it again. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And, you know, definitely, again, you know, also thank you for all your work, you know, during these COVID times. Um, but yeah, so a couple of questions I had, you know, kind of set the stage for your background with film. So how did you get started doing these, you know, little writers? I, I read a little bit of your Spider-Verse review. Um, where did where did that start and where did the management tag come from? Well, as far as my uh, starting in, uh, in write-ups, I mean, much like our, our past in breakdancing and some of my background in graphic design, I've always really liked having a creative outlet that kind of, you know, matches my multiple interests. And it's just great to have a creative outlet to really find a way to, to, to put together exactly what I like about something. Um, I've always been a big fan of juxtaposition in that way of putting together sort of the feelings and the facts of what, I'm, uh, what I see in something. As far as the management tag, uh, there's also kind of a juxtaposition story about that. I think the first part is I'm a massive nerd. And I, uh, I've always loved comic books. I've always loved sort of the, the persona that comes behind a specific name. My favorite Batman villain is the Riddler. Um, I've always really liked that he kind of builds up a, a, a he'll give you a note of something you have to figure out, and you always gotta have to read it a couple of times. And then separately, um, I've all, I've lived in multiple apartments in my life, and I always get I would always get these notes from the people who own the apartment telling me of some random problem I don't understand that I have to deal with. Like, hey, uh, today we're going to be turning off the water from 6 to 6.15. It'd always be signed management. There's something so diabolical and something I have to about that so i put those things together and that's my tag so okay so obviously this is a film podcast and specifically oscars but in general what you, you mentioned you're a nerd what are your favorite you know films in general um either nerd wise or even outside of that on the more artsy side what are your favorite films in recent years and perhaps of all time you know that, that that's a list that's always evolving i'd say that um you know documentaries always really stick with me uh, a certain uh, films with a particular vision and then you know again juxtaposition so black panther obviously just like on a personal level, reading comics as a kid really stood out to me in recent years. But then there are some other films that I just keep rewatching. Uh, I'd say Icarus, which uh, won the uh, Oscar for Best Document uh, Documentary, actually, for it starting out being about doping and being something completely different. Um, Moonlight is another one that uh, stood out, not just for how, how beautiful it was, but how it actually won the Oscar, being a reflection of the Black experience that anything Black folks get 
inevitably kind of goes to white people first. I, I definitely remember that was like the first year that I kind of followed the Oscars face. You know, it was like Moonlight versus uh versus uh, La La Land. I remember, and you know, it's definitely pretty cathartic to see Moonlight win that year. Exactly. Yeah, and obviously, you know, you're you're busy now as a resident. You know, uh, how how do you find time? Like, what are your film watching habits nowadays? I'd say that you know I'm I I follow Twitter and I follow sort of the the big movies that are making buzz and I I'll add them to my list and you know when I when I do finally get to them I find I've already done a little bit of research I like to know who directed it what they were going for you know if it's original versus an adaptation so a lot of my film habits involve a lot of tabs being open as I kind of get a feel for everything going on and what motivated a scene. All right, fair enough. Doing, doing your research. I like it. Um, well, you know, I did a bit of research on my own. And so, you know, we're going to be going over uh, three, you know, sorry, four films uh, this episode. Uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, The Five Bloods, One Night in Miami, and Soul. Um, you know, these are films that, you know, I think more so than in, in many recent years, there's a lot of Black-centric films. And I know you have a lot of very strong feelings about, you know, Black representation uh, in the film. Do you have any, you know, thing to preface, you know, your, your thoughts on, 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 on all that? I think it's uh, we're, we're in something of a, a black film renaissance in the last couple of years. And there's something to be said about the film's ability to speak to the speak to the moment. I think uh, a couple of our films actually directly reference some of the, the George Floyd protests and some of the things going on. So I think there's there's something to be said about the versatility of black film. Um, but yeah, no, there's there's a lot of really interesting films to see here, not just uh, the ones we're going to talk about. I'm excited to get into. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, just just before we get into, it, I, I I noticed that you know I kind of binged a lot of all of these in the past week, and they're all set in different time periods, but they all seem to speak, like you said, to this to this moment in time right now, um, with everything going on with Black Lives Matter. So, all right, we'll just hop straight into it then. So our first film is Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Uh, this is based on a 1982 play by August Wilson, which is part of the Pittsburgh cycle of plays uh, set in 1927 Chicago telling the story of a recording session featuring Viola Davis as the titular Ma Rainey, a real uh, soul singer, mother of blues, uh, and the late Chadwick Boseman as her trumpeter, Levy Green. Uh, it was available on Netflix starting December 18th, produced by Denzel Washington, part of a deal initially with HBO uh, to produce nine of August Wilson's plays in the films. Um, this one definitely has a lot of Oscar buzz, you know, at this time. Um, at the time of recording, you know, going off of goldderby.com, uh, it is currently ranked third most likely to uh, be nominated for Best Picture. Uh, Viola Davis is currently in the lead for Best Actress, uh, Chadwick Boseman uh, for first place uh, in the lead for Best Actor. Um, you know, obviously as an adapted screenplay of the August Wilson play, it's currently uh, third for Best Adapted Screenplay, first for Costume Design, for second for Production Design, and fourth for Best Sound. Um, okay, so Ed, what, what were your thoughts? Like, how, When did you watch this film, first of all? I watched this film within the last two weeks. I had really been uh, uh, struggling with with watching it. I delayed it and delayed it because, you know, Chadwick Boseman's death hit me pretty hard. And something about watching what is, you know, touted as his last performance uh, really kind of delayed my, my vigor to watch it. But I'm really glad that I did. What well, what were your favorite parts, you know, of the film, especially, you know, maybe in relation to, to some of the uh, the nominations that it's likely up for, you know, either acting or, or screenplay? I would say that this was a movie that had a lot of powerhouse performances. It definitely felt like a play that had been filmed. And so a lot of the work of the movie was was carried by the actors. I'd say that obviously Chadwick Boseman and Viola Davis really gave like excellent performances. But I was also struck by sort of the 
for want of a better term, whimsy stuck into the, the narrative of the black experience, especially at that time, which is pretty endemic of any film in the Pittsburgh cycle. Right. So I had a question about that. So I'm not as familiar, you know, with August Wilson or the Pittsburgh cycle. And, you know, I de- tried to do a little bit of research, but, you know, could you tell me from, from your knowledge, what is, you know, who, who was August Wilson? What is the Pittsburgh cycle? And what's its, ex- what's its relevance and significance to the, to the black experience? So, I mean, August Wilson is sort of a, a lauded American playwright who is best known for the films that fit into the uh, aforementioned Pittsburgh cycle, which really consists of 10 plays, um, nine of which are set in Pittsburgh, and then the one play that isn't being uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, speaking about the African-American experience in the 20th century, but then with a certain level of uh, reverence for the mysticism and the ins and outs of the Black experience. And then there are certain uh, elements that stick into all of them, including a strong black lead, uh, uh, strong black characters, um, a prominence of, of black women and their effects uh, on, on the culture and on society. And speaking of uh, experiences of ancestors and interestingly, also a, a recurring theme of, of mental illness or mental impairment in some sense, which comes up actually in Fences, another one of the Pittsburgh cycle. And interestingly, uh, the movie that Denzel Washington himself directed. So it's interesting. This is part of that deal he has with HBO. Presumably all uh, he's producing nine out of the 10 of the Pittsburgh cycles. We have more of these to look forward to. Right. And, you know, if they're all like this, I, I'm definitely looking forward to them. Um, you know, speaking on, on the act, so obviously, you know, Ma, uh, Viola Davis and Chadwick Boseman both are, like we said, in the lead currently for to be nominated for and potentially win uh, their respective acting categories. Um, what did you make of their performances, especially since you mentioned that that Boseman, uh, you know, particularly, you know, his death kind of hit you hard. And what, what are your thoughts on all this? Well, to, actually, to start with Viola Davis, I would say that you know she, she's a commiserate um, sort of a professional. She always gives 110 percent in her roles. I remember her in Doubt. I remember her in Fences, just giving everything and leaving nothing out, leaving nothing out as far as her presentations or as far as her uh, performances. I'd say the thing that's significant about her present her her role in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is sort of a very textured, very layered performance. As, as more time passes, we get through each of those layers, and each of those layers says something different about the experience of being a black woman who performs for consumption. Right. I, I definitely, you know, I'll admit, right, like right off the bat when she, when she you know, sews a blade to the recording session and, and um, kind of like, you know, has her has has just is the way she is you know she definitely comes off very brusque very you know unlikable to some degree but then you know especially with her conversation uh with the with the trombonist um you know in in, in her band you you get to see like her perspective on why she's the way she is i really appreciated that um and what about chadwick's per, per, uh, performance what did you make of, of his you know stunning performance frankly speaking he he definitely speaks to the agony the agony of loss and the agony of a feeling as though you can't necessarily be your best self against these 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 injustices that come to you no matter what. I mean, his monologue about about dealing with the death of his mother. Right. That that was probably the standout moment for me in, in the whole exactly. in the whole in the whole movie. But it's like it, it it speaks to sort of the juxtaposition again of like dealing with trying to be the kind of person who puts on airs, who puts on a great show, the kind of person who's ambitious in a system that doesn't care about his ambitions, but also holds a great deal of contempt for that system. Hearing him deal with, you know, how his mother died and getting back there and and, and hearing how his father dealt with the revenge of things. There's just so many different angles to the experience of a young black man trying to make something of himself and knowing he really can't. Mm. What do you make of like, you know, his, 
the artistry, not only of you know his acting, but also you know the the use of music. Obviously, this is up for you know fourth for best sound, um, and obviously it's about you know a jazz singer. So, what did you make of 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 the use of music and 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 the sound you know throughout the, throughout the, the the movie? I think that the use of music to kind of be on the back end of how we express our emotions, in a manner of speaking, is really important. I'd say that another film that we're going to talk about, you know, also understands that. Inherent in the African-American experience is that music, is that understanding of music as a way to, if you will, speak truth to power. And either they're going to dance or they're going to appreciate what's really being said. And I think that that sort of defiance in a will is is a strong part of both of their pres- uh, performances. Okay. Uh, any other thoughts on, on the film, uh, you know, th- that we haven't touched on yet? I'd say that it's it's uh, it's refreshing to see sort of a representation of, of, of black LGBT couples insofar as Ma Rainey and her uh, younger lover in the film. And then I'd say that this one compared to a, the previous adaptation of, of, of a film in the uh, Pittsburgh cycle does a not as good job of separating it from the fact that it's a play being filmed. Yeah, definitely. I, I'm a little bit, you know, suspect perhaps of the uh, production design, you know, odds of it being second best. It definitely felt like a very constrained play, which, you know, another one that, that we'll, we'll talk about later, you know, is also based on the play. And, uh, did, I think did a little bit of a better job, but I will say to its credit, though, right, like the claustrophobic being in like a hot, um, a hot the band room, right, like underground, and and you could see the sweat on them, and and kind of like the constraint of and and working within that limited space, I will say, uh, definitely definitely stood out to me, you know, in in making you feel like you were there, um, which I guess is what theater does. Certainly, I'd say just as a as final point, I actually went to medical school in Chicago, and that feeling of you think you're away from the South, but in many respects, you're not. And that being the back point of this particular narrative really resonated with me. Um, and I thought it was, it's, it's a strength of the play, but also a strength of the setting. Definitely, you know, taking it as a movie and not just, you know, oh, oh, as a play. Um, one actually last question I had that, that just came to me, you know, um, there's definitely like conflict between, uh, you know, Bozeman's character Levy and and the other three band players, right? Who kind of like do what Ma says, and you know they have like a a different perspective on life with their you know experience since they're older than him. What do you make of that like intergenerational relationship and that conflict between Levy's ideals versus you know kind of the almost resigned? Um, I don't know if that's the right word, but the resigned attitude of his his uh, elders. I'd say that this is another strong point of the Pittsburgh cycle, sort of that intergenerational uh, uh, conflict. I'd say that, again, this is another thing that makes this really speak to the moment. The idea of the younger generation doesn't feel like we can do exactly what the older generation does and, and really achieve progress. But the older generation also understands that ultimately a lot of this comes down to to patience and to investing in ourselves in a way that sometimes the younger generation maybe doesn't see. And I think it does a good job of speaking to the current moment of there were just as many people willing to protest as there were people saying, well, what did George Floyd do wrong? So then I appreciated that sort of nuance and, and again, spoke to that moment because obviously that brings up a lot of feelings in me, someone of the younger generation, even hearing that concept. I can say it's something I've heard from older relatives. Okay, definitely. I, I think we'll, t- we'll 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 circle back to that because I think other other movies we're going to talk about, you know, kind of touch on similar similar points. Um, you know, the the next film we'll talk about is you know one of the earlier films actually uh, from from in consideration from the Oscars um, is The Five Bloods, uh, which is a Spike Lee joint. Um, it follows four aging uh, Black Vietnam War vets who return to Vietnam uh, to search for the remains of their fallen squad leader um, and the treasure that they buried while serving there. Uh, Delroy Lindo plays the 
lead Paul, and Chadwick Boseman plays their deceased captain. Uh, this released on Netflix June 12, 2020. Um, it is currently uh, eighth most likely to be nominated for Best Picture. Uh, Spike Lee is, you know, winning and fourth for Best Director. Dalvoy Lindo is fourth for Best Actor. Chadwick Boseman uh, is fifth for Best Supporting Actor. Um, and Edison is also sixth uh, for Best Original Screenplay and fifth for Best Cinematography. So, you know, obviously, I'll, I'll be frank, I haven't actually seen a lot of Spike Lee films, which is definitely a gl- glaring hole in my uh, oeuvre of a film that I've, that I've consumed. I think the, the first I can really remember seeing is um, Black Klansman a couple of years ago, which is also in Oscar consideration. So first of you, I know you're, you're a Spike Lee fan, or, or you've seen a lot of his works at the very least. Um, what do, how does this fit into Spike Lee's broader filmography? I think the thing that's really interesting about Spike Lee is seeing some of the contrast between a project he started on his own and wrote on his own, like uh, let's say a She's Got a Habit, versus uh, what can happen sometimes when it's a project he's adapting or taking on that he maybe doesn't have that direct connection to. Um, more like his uh, take on uh, the remake of the Korean film that I am blanking Ooh. on the name on right old now. Old boy, old boy. Thank you, sorry. Yeah, and like I would say that the former in that case is is a stronger and more sort of genuine Spike Lee film to the extent that he actually says it's a Spike Lee joint, even he knows, versus the old boy remake he barely claims because he knows he didn't really invest in it in the way he usually would. At, at least, you know, that's speculation on my part. As far as The Five Bloods, this is uh, arguably a perfect middle point of that because this was originally a screenplay about four white Vietnam veterans. Oh. And it had a completely different energy to it. I think this was the perfect kind of film for Spike Lee to, to adapt because there's a certain brilliance in speaking about that generational pain and what you hold on to. Yeah, what, what are common things like within Spike Lee films? You know, if I go, if I were to go and watch other Spike Lee films, what are things to look out for that perhaps you know the Five Bloods does a good job of encapsulating in his style? I'd say a, a reverence for uh, larger than life black characters uh, showing a full spectrum of agreement and disagreement disagreement with what might be in the zeitgeist at a given moment. I think Paul, uh, portrayed by uh, Delroy Lindo, is a good example of that, um, being a Trump supporter while also black. Um, I think a reverence for music. I, uh, a really interesting thing about uh, the Five Bloods is the the Five Bloods themselves are all named after the first names of the Temptations. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, and uh, obviously the use of music within this, even though the, the old a spiritual song that uh, Paul sings well, right before his death. There's a really deep entrenchment of music into uh, Spike Lee films that's also a really good core. Right. And, you know, I, I I wanted to ask you about Delroy Lindo's character, Paul. Like, what did you make of his, uh, you know, his being like a Trump supporter, right? You know, of, you know, obviously, you know, military, you know, tend to have like a higher perspective, but he's also black, right? So, you know, what, what did you make of his portrayal as somebody who, you know, supported 45? I think there's something to be said about, again, this is another very uh, urbane take, I'd say, on the experience of someone who is black but also a Trump supporter, in my mind, speaks to someone who is struggling with what it means to be black in America, but is tired of it and 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 sees that maybe going the other way and, and, and giving in to this idea of, you know, what white people, if you will, want us to do is is acceptable. And, and it is a, it's enough to take power, especially from being part of a population that feels like power is often taken from it. Something about 45 is very unilateral and dictatorial and i think some of his supporters appreciate someone can come in and kind of just take charge and 
being black and having that, especially as an African-American, you, you there's a real struggle in accepting that culturally, socially and so forth. But I think Paul's character really is a good representation of the kind of person who has been through so much that they acquiesce. Right. And speaking of being so much, I mean, like I haven't also have not seen a lot of Vietnam War era films um, for one of my podcasts that I was planning on doing, but I ended up putting on hiatus um, just because I, I was too a little creatively burnt out uh, was I was going to watch a bunch of Vietnam War films in preparation for the five bloods to kind of see where it fits within, you know, Vietnam War films in general. Have you seen a lot of Vietnam War films? I've seen a couple, but I, I, I almost felt like this movie did a better job of speaking of the effects of the Vietnam War than the Vietnam War itself. I think that's best exemplified in the fact that they didn't de-age any of the actors in their flashbacks. Yeah, that was a definitely like a, a cool choice, I think, you know, to, to have the, the elderly, uh, the elder actors. We're going to pay for it, but still. <laughs> true, true. And obviously, we ha- this, this is another, Chad- one of Chadwick Boseman's other last films. Um, this is the last one that released before before he passed in his supporting role. What did you make of, of his portrayal as, as Storm and Norman? I think his per, uh, his portrayal of Storm and Norman, and if I remember correctly, Norman was the name of the manager of The Temptations, as you get another tie in there. Um, it, it really speaks to his past history of, of playing these sort of like larger than life, almost spiritual leaders, if you will, in their particular fields, and how they were able to kind of direct us towards a, a, a certain sort of mindset, a certain sort of achievement. There's this idea in the Black community that Part of why uh, certain movements have failed is because of a lack of leaders. And I, I guess it's just like this idea of like, oh, what does a black leader look like um, is actually another point that does show up a lot in Spike Lee films, uh, most notably his 1992 uh, Malcolm X. Obviously, yes, it's a documentary, it's an adaptation in that sense, but sort of the investigation of what it means to be a black leader and not necessarily always being monolithic and also people may have one idea of you that they carry that changes when you really look at the reality of things like Paul's character and and his over time kind of coming to terms that he was the cause of his, his leader's death and and the guilt he carried with him. There's something about, um, you know, how we look at Malcolm X, how we look at uh, Martin Luther King, how we look at uh, Fred Hampton, that is really important in the black community and really important in how we, we continue to investigate those heroes, especially this month, black history month. Right, for sure. And, you know, one of the things I really appreciated, um, you know, in, in The Five Bloods, and this may be something Spike Lee does, I don't know, but, you know, within this, with this specifically, there were, like, random cutaways, you know. I think there was that scene uh, when, when I forget his name, but but Paul's son is on the on the landmine, and they're talking about, you know, the Morehouse alum who was, like, a, a star athletic runner, basically, right? Um, and they cut to, like, you know, either, either photos or clips of him uh, running as inspiration, right? And it's like, this is, like, another leader of all Almost like, like you said, a mythological, you know, black figure uh, that's that's lionized uh, within the film, even though he's not actually a character. Exactly, and I mean, like that's a, a more recent development as far as uh, Spike Lee's films, where he literally like shows the citation of the reference he's making. I would say that the scene uh, uh, involving the two landmines is like the strongest part of the movie. Like I, I, I watched Transfixed. It was it was an amazing scene that that kind of touched on so many dis- different points. That mythology that you know, uh, black fathers and black sons, trust, and, and, and how we kind of overcome in a manner of speaking. Ultimately, we overcome together. I think it's kind of what the, 
that scene was saying, but one of the best scenes of Spike Lee's I've seen in a long time. I was actually curious, you know, there's another scene in the film that, that I didn't know quite what to make of, um, and this may be another Spikeism, um, is, you know, when when Paul went off on his own and he's like, he talks directly into the camera. Um, I couldn't really fully parse what like he was saying and, and, and make sense of it. Like, did you, did you understand like what was going on? Like what that, what that scene in particular meant? I think it was sort of like a, a, a take on sort of his mind state at that point of like him wrestling with the, with all of the things he's seen and him wrestling with this idea of like, I know that in a manner of speaking, being a Trump supporter makes no sense as a black person, but they're not going to get me. They're not going to trick me out of my certainty. And I, I, I mean, I must say for him to be number four on the list, I'm, I'm surprised like his performance was, was a powerhouse performance that like, even if you couldn't necessarily understand the, the exact cultural touchstones he was touching on and everything he was saying, you could feel the conflict within this man. Right. Um, yeah. I'm pulling up the list of, of who the other ones, um, you know, uh, are, 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 are for best actor, actually. Um, I'll obviously, um, Chadwick Boseman is number one. Um, I believe Anthony Hopkins in The Father is number two. And then Riz Ahmed uh, in Sound of Metal is number three. Um, so, you know, I, I, I know Anthony Hopkins has definitely won Oscars and Riz Ahmed, apparently I, I'm doing another episode, you know, later, later, uh, this month on, on, on Riz Ahmed as well. So, um, we'll, we'll see how that looks. Um, you know, and then, you know, I know in your review that I saw, you weren't quite a fan of the Dolly, uh, of the Dolly shots, um, which, uh, interestingly is, is, um, you know, it's, it's fifth for cinematography. what do you make of that? Okay, so I think you know that's five the, the five bloods, and you know we'll, we'll take a quick, quick, quick break from going to film specifically to you know pay tribute to Chadwick Boseman, right? And obviously he passed uh, this past year, um, and you know kind of socked the the, the world really um, with it, with his you know his struggle with cancer, which he had kind of kept private from the world until you know after he had passed. So I just wanted to go over his his career. Um, you know he started off in theater um, in New York, uh, having best known for his play Deep Azure um, about police. Brutality all the way back in 2004. Um, he got his start in TV in 2003 um, on Third Watts, um, also on a soap opera, All My Children, which he actually got fired from over raising concerns over racist stereotypes, as well as episodes of Law and Order, Cold Case, CSI, ER. Um, he moved to LA in 2008, and his first film appearance was in The Express, um, the Ernie Davis story, uh, you know, the story of the first black Heisman winner. Um, he played the character Floyd Little, who was one of Ernie Davis. Davis's protégés um, as a running back. Um, his breakthrough role in 2013 was um, kind of interesting that you talked about, like kind of like the Spike Lee's lionization of, of of these characters. You know, his another he played another one uh, in, in in 42 as Jackie Robinson, um, and then later my actually first uh, experience with Chadwick Boseman was in 2014 uh, when he played James Brown in Get On Up. Uh, you know, obviously as a as a former B boy, gotta 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 give some love for James Brown. Um, and then 2016, obviously, his you know probably most significant role was was T'Challa, aka Black Panther, in Captain America: Civil War. Uh, before he had his own film in 2018 that broke all sorts of box office records and was the first superhero film to be nominated for Best Picture. Um, his absolute last role, actually, you know, in addition to the two we've talked, will actually be a, as a voice acting role as T'Challa in Disney's upcoming animated series What If that explores alternate realities of the MCU. I think the specific one I, that I, I've seen trailers of is uh, T'Challa becomes Star-Lord, basically. Yeah, exactly. Um, really interesting to see. 
yeah, no, that definitely. I think like you know, going off into space, what a, what a better send off. Um, and of course, after Black Panther, in addition to these two films, he continued to act. Um, he played Marshall uh, as uh, in Marshall as Thurgood Marshall, uh, and, and this in Twenty One Bridges. So, Ed, what what are your thoughts on Chadwick Boseman? You know, just just in general, I think you you kind of mentioned some of it earlier. I think the thing about Chadwick Boseman that always really stood out to me, especially as as he kind of did his first uh, breakthrough role, was his ability to play these larger-than-life characters, like I was alluding to before, in 42, in, in Get On Up, the, the Black Panther, uh, Thurgood Marshall, that, that ability to embody fully and respectfully what we value about those characters, and not in a way that was ever trite or, or ever half done. He always really fully committed to and, and seem to really understand what it meant to see these characters on screen. Um, I'd say that for for Black Panther in particular, knowing that his his cancer diagnosis and, and stage four colon cancer, I'm actually a pathology resident, so I know everything that, that goes into the staging and diagnosis of colon cancer. At his age, for him to have that is, is an advanced sort of cancer. And, and to know that he was going through training for Black Panther and all through while keeping this entirely to himself speaks to a certain level of he he respected the craft he respected what he was doing so much he knew how much this would mean so he absolutely like much like Viola Davis much like some of the other lauded actors did he left it all on the screen and i you know we're, i'm heartbroken as many other people are that we won't get to see him you know embody black panther further and, and, and get to see some of the other roles he had lined up. He was actually going to play uh, Yasuke, uh, Yasuke, I think I'm saying that uh, correctly, um, historically known as uh, the um, the Black Samurai. That was one of the roles he had going. So he was going to continue to embody sort of black people in these larger-than-life, almost unexpected roles. And I'm, I'm sad that we won't get to see more of that. But I think he really just represents a an absolutely an absolute commitment to the craft and to the message, to the mission. Yeah, and you know, I think to your point, like he he understood what these larger than life characters meant to people to see on screen. I'm sure, you know, for, especially for the black audience. In in addition, like he also had like this humanity to them, where he brought them to he brought the um he he brought the humanity to these larger than life figures, right? Um, I mean, you know, this is maybe you know, Levy, for example, in Ma Rainey, maybe isn't like the the biggest character, but you know, he definitely he he's an archetypal character in there, where it's like he represents the frustrated, you know, black man. But in addition, he also saw showed some of the flaws of Levy and 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 that as well. And I think in James Brown, particularly, right, like he showed James Brown's struggle in addition to you know what made James Brown so special, right? Absolutely. I think that most uh, musical biofic films kind of fall into the same tropes. But what really stood out about that was how much he, again, he really committed to showing the, the, the humanity and the flaws of James Brown. To the extent that, like, during the promotion of Get On Up, I remember he performed on The Late Show with David Letterman. Like, he actually sang himself. Like, he really commits to every role he does. Yeah. Um Western Western Power, uh Jack Chadwick Boseman, you know, Wakanda Forever. Um, you know, we, you you will be missed. Absolutely. 
Okay. Uh, speaking of uh, larger than life figures, this next film is is chock full of them. Um, so you know we have One Night in the Miami. Um, this is based on a debut play by Camp Powers, um, a fictionalist account of the nights of February twenty fifth, nineteen sixty four, where four Black American icons, uh, Nation of Islam leader Malcolm X, played by Kingsley Benadir, uh, singer songwriter and producer Sam Cooke, played by Leslie Odom Jr., uh, Cassius Clay, aka Boxer Muhammad Ali portrayed by Ellie Gorey, and Cleveland Browns star running back and later movie star Jim Brown, played by Aldous Hodes. Or Hodes. Um, this is Regina King's de- debut directorial work and was picked up by Amazon for distribution, uh, released online January 15th this year after a limited release on Christmas Day. Um, this is currently fourth for Best Picture, sixth for Best Director, um, which is amazing for Regina King as a, as a her directorial debut. Uh, seventh for Best Actor uh, for King- Kingsley Benadire, Malcolm X. Uh, first for Best Supporting Actor, Leslie Odom Jr. as Sam Cooke. Uh, and second for Best Adapted Screenplay um, by Kemp Powers. So, you know, we've talked a lot about like lionized mythological figures. Uh, for you, Ed, what was it like seeing these four characters uh, and these four black icons on film uh, in on screen altogether? I think what was really interesting is seeing sort of the choices the actors made in portraying them. I mean, a lot of a lot of films that have these characters sort of show up in the background, if you will, um, maybe stick to the costuming and maybe stick to sort of what we know about them. But each of these uh, four actors who, who played these characters sp- spoke to different elements of, of things about their characters we maybe don't always notice. I think Malcolm X is, is a lionizing figure, but I think um, Benadir really made a, a, a point of showing his, this man's tenderness and his deep love and his deep belief in what he was doing. I think that um, uh, Odom Jr. did a really good job with Sam Cooke. And, and Sam Cooke is a, is a controversial figure. His, his life was cut short, and there was a lot of, of, of complexity between what he was doing. But I think he really spoke to that, that struggle of being for the Black community, but also you know not necessarily wanting to be criticized by it for what you're doing. I think um, for Cassius Clay, later Muhammad Ali, they did a really good job of speaking to his trepidation. For, for a man who was known to be super confident, boisterous, they, they really spoke to some of the conflict he was going through, and just how young he was for a lot of these things. Yeah, he had so much energy in this film. He's like bouncing, literally bouncing in some scenes. What he was like. But then um, for Jim Brown, I think speaking about sort of the, 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 the subtlety sometimes black men have to have to engage in to be successful in the things they're doing. I definitely remember like the energy they, that, that was placed on the scene where he was like, hey, don't tell them what I'm doing. Because, you know, I, I, I don't want to get into it and I don't want to make a big statement. I kind of want to, to, to glide under the radar for a little bit. There's nothing being medicine I kind of understand. <laughs> Yeah, I will say I think my favorite of the four actually was uh, Aldous Hodge as Jim Brown. He's just like the mom of the group almost. It's like, like even even if you if you aren't you know I'm not black right, but I could definitely I got that dynamic of these this friend group where you know you have like you know the two the two people who tend to butt heads a little bit more in in Sam Cooke and and Malcolm X. Um, you know, kind of like the the somewhat more naive one in in Cassius Clay, and then you know the mom who just tries to like keep them all together. That 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 felt like Jim Brown to me. Um, I just you know definitely definitely stand for Jim Brown and Aldous Hodes in this. Same, he was excellent. Um, so you know, what do you make of Regina King in her di- directorial debut? How did you think she did? Like, what what about her direct her direction in this film worked for you? I think that she really put a lot of energy in the the emotional weight of, of words said. I remember again to, to, to bring um 
the Jim Brown character up, when he meets with uh, Bo Bridges' character in, in that house in um, Georgia, and he speaks about, like, you, you can see Jim Brown start to kind of let his guard down after being guarded, being in the NFL. And to hear his 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 uh, ostensibly lifelong friend say, no, you can't help me move. We don't let niggas in the house. Like, she really lingers on that long enough to, to, to help you kind of feel, even if you're not from that cultural background, what he's feeling. And I think she has a really firm hand on the wheel as far as a, a director um, and a really good understanding of space and distance that... I thought it was really striking. I, I thought she, it was an amazingly uh, directed film. So I definitely understand why she's getting the buzz she's getting. I mean, her being an actor herself and playing in multiple types of, uh, of roles that speak to the Black experience, I think she she understood why it needed to be handled delicately sometimes and, and with more fervor other times. I, I think it was a remarkable job. Right. I mean, you know, especially with, for example, uh, uh, um, you know, Malcolm X as a character is definitely a uh, you know, somewhat divisive. You know, in in some parts, I think, and you know, and and how he, and how he's received. But you know, like you said, Benadir did a great job, and I think she gave him the space to work to be able to to have that. And it, another thing, I like, maybe this is you know partly to her, partly to Kemp Powers uh, in the screenplay, because again, this was originally a, a play, a theater play. Um, is that each almost? I feel like each pair of characters gets their own chance to interact interact with each other and bounce off each other and you get to see the way that the different personalities um and and dynamics and ideals you know bounce off of each other very much so i think compared to our our previous discussion of a play adaptation this one feels less like a play it feels less like everyone's aiming their monologues in a direction more like even though we know this is a fictional account of a given night, it really feels like so. It, it feels much more like a documentary, like we're a fly on the wall watching something happen instead of having a story be told to us. Yeah, this this totally feels like some some like what, what would happen at someone's low key like bachelor party, basically. Exactly. Um, I also, you know, specific some specific things. This isn't in for cinematography, but I really like the direction. With you know, there are definitely some scenes where you know the power dynamic of how you know. In, if there was a conflict between two characters, how it was framed so that, you know, the the balance of the conversation and who was, quote unquote, winning a particular argument was sifted with the way the camera was placed. I also really appreciated some of the overhead shots, um, you know, with uh, some of the overhead shots, especially like in the boxing sequences um, to, to give a more than just like, a oh, it's just essentially a stage adaptation, right? Right. And you also just you got a better sense of just like what their their lives were like. By, by being able to kind of more entrench yourself in the emotional experience of it. Um, you know, you, you also mentioned earlier a little bit about music. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming this is the film you, film you were talking about, you know, with music and, and Sam Cooke specifically. Um, what did you make of that whole, in that argument and, and that part of the film in particular? I think there's, there's an interesting uh, way that Leslie Odom Jr. being, you know, of Hamilton fame and being a known singer in many respects, he was like a perfect choice for Sam Cooke. And, and, and again, speaking to, how important music can and often is to the black community. I think the part of the core narrative in this story is how um, Sam Cooke didn't write the song already that, that speaks to the moment that they needed to hear and, and having sort of like an origin story for uh, uh, a change is going to come and how in reality, he really was influenced by Bob Dylan, a person who, you know, from Minnesota ostensibly not understanding they would expect to not understand what's going on. Even he can really speak to that moment. I think there's something to be said about like a, a sort of reverence for how strong music can be. And, and, and again, the message, the mission. 
the 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 struggle of Black America. Hmm. Yeah, and you know, I think you know, it, we can't talk about you know music in 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 the Oscars this year without mentioning uh, the next film, Soul. Um, Transition. Yeah, thank you. I I do my best. So Soul, you know, is the latest Pixar film uh, co-directed and co-written by Pete Docter, you know, uh, Inside Out um, uh, and Up, uh, Mike Jones and Kemp Powers, who is actually the same Kemp Powers who wrote the play One Night in Miami is based on. Um, It explores the metaphysical question of what it means to find your spark for life as middle school music teacher Joe Gardner, voiced by Jamie Foxx, helps young soul number 22 discover the joys of living on Earth. Uh, Joe's jazz playing reference was provided by John Baptiste uh, with the rest of the score provided by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. This is the first Pixar film with a black protagonist and was released on Disney Plus on Christmas Day. So I guess Kemp Powers had a really busy Christmas Day between One Night in Miami and Soul. Um, it is uh, 13th most likely for Best Picture, 5th for Best Original Screenplay, 5th for Best Sound, and 1st, of course, for Best Animated Film, as many Pixar films often are. Um, so before we talk, you actually mentioned that you didn't quite like Soul as much. So what are your thoughts on Soul overall, Ed? Soul feels like... It feels like a Frankenstein's monster of a film because it feels like there's two halves. There's the the really endearing, really well-designed sort of pseudo-hyper-realistic take of New York and of Black culture and of jazz. That's which, 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 time out real quick. I have to say, being in lockdown in New York, that just, like, as someone who's lived in New York for the past seven years, that just, like, made me miss New York so much. Like, seeing all of the little things about New York and a populated, bustling New York just made me miss that so much. But carry on. Trust me, I miss it too. Even though like as a quote unquote essential worker, I'm on the subway and I get to see it. And this made me long for, you know, a back to normalcy that we were not quite at. I'd say that that was one half of the movie. But then the other half of the movie that feels almost like it was made much longer ago was this sort of like metaphysical, philosophical take on the before and afterlife that seems almost completely disconnected from the previous movie, if you will, that seems um, these seem like two different movies kind of forced together in 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 style or in theme. Because I feel like, for my take, right, like I'm I'm a little bit more, I guess, like I, I really enjoy animated films in general. I have like a whole anime podcast, but um, you know, like I think the 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 part of like you know a lived New York and just the 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 thorough exploration of what the little things of living in New York and the joys of being alive are, I think is the whole theme that ties to the original point, right? And maybe the looks are different, um, but maybe, I don't know, maybe, I don't know. That, that's my take on it, on, on how they, there are two different films that, that by thematically, maybe they look different, but they come together thematically for me. I think that, I, I definitely agree with that. Thematically, it's it's definitely connected about that, that, that energy and that, and for, to use the term from the movie, that spark that comes with the joys of living. I guess it's just there was maybe from the amount of movies I watch or, or, or maybe from the way I've kind of, I've learned to kind of do a lot of research. I had the suspicion that this was a movie that had a lot of rewrites. And then when I actually watched the behind the scenes feature at on soul after finishing it, that was in, incredibly the case. This is like a film with a black lead. Like I said, it's the first uh, Pixar film with a black lead, but it's not a black film in quite the same way that you know the other three films we've talked about today uh, have been. Um, what what's your take on on that difference? And is there space for both films? Should should Pixar have been a little bit more like the other? Like, what's your take? I think like 
while I, I'm glad that there's a, a I'm always glad to see more representation, especially in Disney movies. I know Raya in the last, uh, I think I'm saying that right. Raya yeah, in Raya last, in the last dragon. Yeah. I'm really excited to see that movie to see their take on that. I'm always happy to see, you know, Disney not always make the safe choice in terms of widest appeal, if you will. But I think it's worth making the distinction that this is the first film, Pixar film with a black protagonist, that it's not a black Pixar film. The, I think certain elements of the protagonist had some of its edges sanded off. And again, that was confirmed in the behind the scenes shorts. It almost seems like the movie really should have led John Baptiste. But they went with Jamie Foxx because he's bankable. And of course, he does have a musical background and, and comedy chops. But it feels like a lot of the edges were sanded off. Hmm. Yeah. So the, you said you mentioned the, you saw the behind the scenes. There was this one feature called "Not Your Average Joe" uh, that that featured how Pixar developed an internal "quote unquote" culture trust of Black Pixar employees and external consultants as well to you know advise on the African American culture. I think you know they they mentioned that you know maybe one early draft had them all outside when Joe comes up to them, but they moved it to maybe like inside, inside the barber shop or inside you know the back room of of his mom's uh, tailor shop. Um, what are your what's your take on Pixar taking that particular step? I think that it's it's laudable that Pixar really wanted to make sure that by touching on some of these topics, they stay authentic. And I think that uh, having a culture trust of people that already work at Pixar can be like, hey, here's, you know, here's our experience. I think that's really laudable. I think that's a really good uh, approach um, that I hope they employ in other more culturally touchstoned uh, movies. What I would say is that I take some level of umbrage at the fact that Pixar is kind of patting themselves on the back so much. <laughs> fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. I mean, you know, it, it, it is what it is, but, uh, you know, definitely should have been done long ago. And, you know, I, I'm personally looking for it. I think there's like a film coming up uh, by Domi C, the, the, the director of The Sword Bow. I think one of, one of the upcoming films, Turning Red, um, is going to be directed by her. So I'm curious to see um, how like her uh, – her, her Chinese heritage uh, plays into that since it, it features like a big red panda, basically, like a Totoro-type panda. It's going to be interesting to see. I guess the only other thing I'd say real quick is that um, there's something to be said about the fact that Pixar approaches the trust as like, well, there's a monolithic African-American. Mm, yeah. Which, I mean, being a, 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 a child of immigrants, being an immigrant myself, it's like the African-American experience is a diaspora. And it's it's really hard to just cry and take one piece and be like, all right, yeah, they get their haircuts. Like, there's more to it than that. But I also understand it's a Pixar movie. They could do so much. They could, they could, yeah, they can only do so much. And, you know, it's better, I guess, I guess to some degree, right? And, and this is maybe like a, a conversation that maybe Malcolm X and, and, and uh, Sam Cooke would have had. But, like, you know, you can only, like, baby steps, but they should have done more, right? Exactly. That's a good way to put it, yeah. Um, okay, so obviously Soul is kind of like, you know, it's in it's lower down for some others. I mean, it's crazy that Nine Inch Nails is is potentially could get best score for this. Um, right. um, but you know, and obviously, you know, Kemp Powers, you know, power to him for having uh, two films uh, within the screenplay categories, uh, nom- potentially nominated. Um, but obviously, the the elephant in the room is Pixar. Is Soul is likely, you know, given Pixar's track record, going to be the winning film for best animated film? And obviously, you know, at the top of the show, I, I mentioned your uh, Into the Spider Verse review. Um, um, how did this stack up from a visual animation perspective for you? From a visual animation uh, perspective, to, to, to use a meme, it's it's uh, chef's, chef's kiss. Like it was the the appreciation of skin tone and how how light interacts with it, which is usually a problem in film, especially especially with black characters, right? Oh my god, yes, it, like everything was beautifully lit, but like photorealistic, but still 
cartoony in a way, um, um, exaggerated. Uh, something to be said about texture, the texture of hair, the texture of of an emotion that you kind of get from uh, black media. I, I really appreciated how everyone was designed. I think the character played by Questlove and the character played by Donnell Rollins, the uh, barber, had really these these designs of like, I know that guy. Funny enough, actually, um, the barbershop scene really reminded me of the barbershop I would go to on Penn's campus after practice we would go to for, for uh, Freaks of the Beat. Like, I think they really nailed that feel of being in that place and it being a, a sort of um, atmosphere of conversation and an atmosphere of a transfer of ideas. I think they really nailed a lot of that, again, that texture. Awesome. Yeah. And, you know, definitely, definitely, you know, I, after the pandemic, I didn't watch a lot of films. I'm definitely glad I watched, uh, watched Soul, especially, you know, as someone who loves animation. Um, so we'll see if anyone can, can, can put, hold a candle to Soul this year. I was just going to say, you know, also as a fellow lover of anime, I appreciate sort of the choices made here. Absolutely. Of course. Um, and of course, you know, those are the, the four films that, that I want to talk about this episode with you. There are a couple other films that are um, potentially getting some Oscar butts, which we won't, we won't go into so deeply, uh, mostly because I haven't watched them yet. Um, but these are other black films that seem to be competitive. Uh, Judas and the Black Messiah. It's a story of the chairman, Fred Hampton, uh, chairman of the Black Panther Party, portrayed by Daniel Kaluuya, and his betrayal by William O'Neill, played by Lakeith Stanfield. Coming, it's, came, or it's coming to HBO Max February 12th. Um, it is currently 11th for Best Picture, 7th for Best Supporting Actress, Dominique Fishback, 3rd for Best Supporting Actor, Daniel Kaluuya, 6th for Best Cinematography, and 7th for Best editing um and in addition there's also the united states versus billy holiday directed by lee daniels the story of jazz singer billy holiday aka lady day portrayed by singer andrew day uh releasing on hulu february 26th 14th for best picture sixth for best actress andrew day and seventh for best costume design um and there's also been like other rumors i didn't have these in the sonos but apparently like the denzel washington film this is us or the little things sorry that came out on hbo max might be getting some buzz as is um, the uh, the Malcolm and Marie film with Zendaya um, and John Daniels Washington. So, what do you think of like just all of these other films? Like, you know, we haven't seen them yet. Oh, I haven't seen them yet. I don't know if you've seen some of the others, but uh, what are your thoughts, Ed, on on just all of these excellent black films coming out? And any any you're excited for? I think to kind of circle back to the idea of that black film renaissance that we're 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 going through right now, it's refreshing to see different narratives that. I mean, some of these still kind of stick to the, the trope, but it's different. To, it's it's really exciting to see narratives of black experience that isn't just about suffering, that some of this is about here's what really happened and it's not being filled. And you're going to like in the case of Judas and the Black Messiah, it's worth mentioning, like the thing they're going to show is what happened. Fred Hampton is not one of the, uh, the, the names, unfortunately, that comes straight to the forefront in the zeitgeist. And I hope this movie really makes it clear that it should be. Also, um, Malcolm and Marie, I'd say that the the benefit there is kind of seeing uh, a portrayal of black love that's complicated and artsy and, and and something really unique that maybe we haven't seen to a certain extent. It's just great to see. Again, it's a diaspora. It's the black African American experience isn't just one thing, and it's great to be able to see lots of different angles to it. Of course, for sure, for sure. And you know, uh, I, I I feel the same way with you know, especially with Parasite winning last year. There's going to be in, in a similar way from my perspective. You know, another Asian and Asian American film that sounds coming soon, hopefully as well. I love it. So you know, some closing questions, right? So. 
uh, you know, like like I said, I don't remember last year we had this many black centric films competitive for best picture um, and and other categories. You know, um, at, at the ninety first Oscars in twenty nineteen, we had Green Book, which eh, Green Book, uh, which yeah. won plus Black Klansman and Black Panther. Uh, at the ninetieth in twenty eighteen, we had Get Out. The eighty ninth Oscars had uh, Moonlight, which won, and Hidden Figures. And then the eighty seventh Oscars in twenty fifteen had Selma. But you know, it seems like it was about like maybe one film for best picture a year. And then suddenly in past years, it's been like three and now potentially even four. Um, now, obviously, you know, this and, and obviously there have been, I think, rightfully so, there's been criticism of the Oscars being, you know, Oscars so white, predominantly white films. And there's been a push for diversity. But, you know, in light of all that, and like we mentioned earlier in the episode, you know, this past year has definitely been rough um, in terms of, you know, just conversations about race with, with the George Floyd killings and the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, one thing I noted is that, you know, a lot of the struggles from from many of these films, you know, aside from Soul, The Five Bloods is set in present day. One Night in Miami, the 1960s, uh, you know, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, the 1920s. It feels like the struggle has not stopped. And it's like the same struggle, right? It's, it's, it's eerie seeing these back to back, how it's all the same. Um, what do you think, like the fact that these films speak so presently to the present moment presumably like they've been in production for a while how does this black excellence in film make you feel and and how does it relate to the current moment i think that you know the black i think black entertainment and black excellence in film is often a reflection of what's going on and the thing that makes it feel so timeless is that history tends to repeat itself so i think seeing a movie set in the 1920s seeing a movie set in the 1960s seeing a movie set in the present day all speak to the same sort of halting feel of progress two uh two steps forward three steps back at times is is kind of what it is to be black in america and while it is it's 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 sobering to be reminded of the reality of that i think it's really great to be able to 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 use film and it's and its ability to kind of you know bring multiple different eyes on something to be able to again see lots of different angles so I think this much seeing this much black excellence in film makes makes me hopeful. I, I'm, I'm glad to see, and it makes me hopeful not just for for black excellence in film, but like you had mentioned, Parasite. You had mentioned we had talked about our, our run on the Last Dragon and some of the other big films that are coming up. I'm I'm I'm, ex, I'm hopeful to see more and more di- uh, diverse equity in film. I'm excited to see more and more perspectives. I think that's kind of what all of this makes me feel. Right. And, you know, I, I, I appreciate that. And, you know, definitely, you know, the, the, the struggle never stops and film is only but one reflection of the struggle. Hopefully in the future we can get, you know, you know, excellent films, you know, about the black experience without it needing to be so painfully reminding of the present day. And, and hopefully we can see these films as like, oh, this is what it used to be, but hopefully we're in a better place in the future. But the work never stops, right? And we keep sticking to the mission. Work never stops. So, you know, on that note, any other thoughts on these films in general or, you know, any films in 2021, you know, aside from the ones we've mentioned that you're looking forward to? Insofar as uh, other things I'm interested in, I'm really enjoying seeing what Marvel's doing because they're kind of getting into multiple different um, universe work. It's going to be interesting seeing them try and adapt the Black Captain America storyline in the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Um, I'm also honestly just looking forward to the what the movie industry looks like in a post we all have to go to movie theaters world. So I'm really excited about what kind of movies come from that. And it doesn't have to be ba- movies may not necessarily need to be bankable 
in a movie theater to to, to get a wide release. I'm, I'm really excited to just see what the film industry looks like. For that, check out my Box Office Watts podcast where I go over box office news. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's definitely like a uh, there's definitely also like you know I think some great things from Sundance coming out. I, I know that like Passing uh, got a major deal from Netflix yeah, about like. Uh, that that one that one looks pretty exciting. So, uh, but yeah, twenty twenty one. Despite the pandemic and everything, I think we're gonna have a great Oscars and you know a great movie year for movies this year. I think. Um, all right, Ed, it's been a blast. Uh, is there anything you want to plug? Any social media links, especially if people want to get your takes on these films and and these and 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 Marvel stuff as it comes out? Uh, you can follow me on Instagram as uh, nsthought underscore management. And as a healthcare professional, I would be remiss not to remind you: please wear a mask. Wash your hands, and as I often tell people, don't lick anything. <laughs> uh, I'll do my best to, to not lick anything, Ed. Um, all right, thank you so much. I'll link to your to your social uh, in in the show notes. Uh, thank you so much, Ed. It's been a blast. We have to do this more often. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here, and I hope to come back. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Many thanks again to Ed for coming onto the podcast. I really appreciate his perspective in helping me grapple and better understand those black films, especially not coming from a black background myself, uh, and coming to terms with the idea that the mission never ends, the work never stops. Uh, if you want to connect with Ed, as he said, you can follow him on his Instagram at nsthought underscore management, or on Twitter, which he didn't mention, at nst underscore management. Uh, links to those in the show notes. Next week, we'll be bringing, diving into the films of Mank, The Trial of the Chicago 7, and Promising Young Woman with a special guest from the Oscars Death Race online communities from the subreddit and Discord community. Uh, stay tuned for that next week. But again, until then, that wraps up this episode of the Oscars Death Race podcast. Let me know how your Death Race is going on Twitter, uh, Oscars D Race Cast, or via email at Oscars Death Race Podcast at gmail.com. And let me know what did you think about um, you know these films that we talked about: Ma Rainey's One Night in Miami, The Five Bloods, or Soul. Uh, make sure you subscribe to the show on your podcast service of choice: iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or leave us a review there or on Podchaser.com, or just share it with a friend who loves movies. It's always super helpful. You can follow me on Letterboxd, uh, linked in the show notes under the username Ninja Boy, Boy with an I. Uh, also linked will be the Oscar Race and Oscars Death Race subreddits, as well as the Oscars Death Race Discord, all of which you should definitely check out. Leave a comment on one of those threads if you find it there. Uh, music is provided by Kevin MacLeod to find his stuff at incompetech.filmmusic.io. Editing and production is provided by Ninja Boy Media. That's it for this week. This has been Paulo of the Oscars Death Race Podcast. Until next time, I'll be here trying to watch all the movies or die trying. <laughs>